Welcome to Live from My Drum Room with John DeChristopher. Here's part two of my interview with the great Jimmy Chamberlain of Smashing Pumpkins. I hope you've enjoyed part one. If you haven't, be sure to check it out. Or if you haven't, I'm sorry you haven't enjoyed it. But uh, if you haven't watched it, be sure to check it out or listen to it. And uh, I do hope you enjoy part two. I'll see you on the other side. And as always, thanks for watching and listening. See you in a bit. Um, I, I want to give a quick shout out to a, a good friend of mine who's watching live. Joey Goodsell is watching. And uh, Joey, great to see you, buddy. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, he had a question to ask you, Jimmy. And I'm going to, he said, odd question, but what kind of throne do you sit on? Uh, the brand of throne, and is, is it a round throne or is it a saddle throne? I'm guessing it's a Yamaha <laughs> throne. Yep. <laughs> it's a free throne. <laughs> the, the free model the free free because i'm an endorser model yeah it's on the page after the back cover of the catalog um it's yeah it's a round throne i'm a round throne guy i tried i my family like i'm i'm half hungarian and half english so it's like we have like a wide we have a wide frame in the back end <laughs> some of us so our family reunion there's a lot of real estate hanging over the chair. Um, so the, the uh, there's a, so the, so the saddle throne doesn't really, it doesn't do me any favors. The round throne is a lot better for me. I, I feel like I can move around better. Uh, and even if it's, even if it's locked in, I can just slide on the throne. Whereas the saddle, I'm kind of, I'm kind of moving my torso yeah. and yeah. not my body and my feet. So yeah, I like the round throne, although I'm still, I'm still, and I don't want to give my, uh, my idea away, but I guess it's never going to happen anyway. I'm still waiting for somebody to make, you know how you like the new cars when you get in, some of them will have like a Mercedes or whatever. They'll have the air conditioned seats, yeah. right? Where you push the button and they're cool. Like, why don't we have the drum thrown like that? Like, why we need Great to, idea. we need somebody. Yeah. So Mr. Goodsell, maybe you could make uh air conditioned, just push a button and the cold air comes up and. <laughs> I have that it, in, yeah. my, in my Tesla. It's it's been so hot here lately. It's I never thought I'd use it, but I do use it. Yeah, yeah, hell yeah, it's a nice feature. You, I mean, if you had it on your drum throne, it'd be you'd be you'd be, those, you'd, you'd be those, a business. Those, those sweaty gigs. Oh man, this is great. Um, this is great. I you know I you made a, a point a minute ago. I'm going to try to jog my brain to go back to it, but just when you when you mentioned. Um, Jumping back a couple of minutes, you mentioned your sort of process for practicing is you you put on a click track and you're you're working on some like older pumpkin tunes for rehearsals. Those tunes originally were recorded. They weren't recorded with a click though, right? Those <laughs> no. no, those were no. no, no, those songs were were just live to tape. So the way yeah, and all yeah. those drum performances were just live drum performances, and that's the way we played. So. We, you know, we didn't, we didn't like the way the band sounded with click and partially that was my fault because I never was that good at playing with it. Honestly, I always play with bands that were like, like stuff moving around. So in Corgan, yeah. especially, you know, wanted, wanted to push choruses and pull verses back and you didn't want to be married to something that was static. So, um, all that stuff was just, you know, full takes to click and then they then those guys would figure it out and oftentimes you know billy would be attracted to drum takes that were maybe not my first pick you know because there were draggy bits or or parts that kind of launched uh, uh into the stratosphere but 
it worked for us. So up until yeah. up yeah. until Zeitgeist, you know, Zeitgeist, and we got better at it as as time time went on. I think post melancholy, like if you listen to Machine and the Bands, definitely becomes a better timekeeping unit. And then by the time we got to Zeitgeist, we still weren't playing the clicks, but we were using click starts. So we would we would know what the start tempos of the songs were. And we got to the point where, and we're we can do this live now too. We can we can we can roll off versions of songs with no click and have them be within one two seconds of each other. You know, there's yeah. that's you start to get that muscle memory. Sure. But no, those 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 songs were all click because oftentimes Billy would go back and replace the bass and would do multiple guitars. So we would play live as a band and only keep the drums. And then wipe everything else and then go and reconstruct the song with whoever was going to play what. But it got to be, you know, it was always on me to play the, you know, the take. Yeah. And those yeah. guys could just, you know, figure it out in piecemeal. So it was always, you know, if somebody fucked up the song while I was in the middle of a great take, it got to be, you know, a problem. Because I was, yeah. you know, not the most mentally stable person back then and had a <laughs> bit of a temper. But... No, but I understand. I mean, no, yeah. God, you know what? <laughs> but when it worked, it was great. I mean, the gish, yeah. the gish stuff was done in two days, and I think a lot of those drum takes were just one take, um, one one take, maybe two takes. And Butch was like, "Okay, we're done." Plus, we didn't have any money, so you only had money for one take. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, um, but as uh, as time went on, you know, that stuff got to be. You know, we would do three, four takes. I'm, I'm generally like a three, four take guy. And, you know, with the new stuff, with the new stuff, because we are playing to a click and I, I spent a lot of time working on my click playing over the last 10 years. And now, now I'm, I'm pretty good, really good at it. Pretty good. I can, I can move around the click without make it sound like an idiot. Um, and, yeah. and I know what I'm doing and I like it. I prefer it. I prefer I prefer recording to a click because it just solves a lot of issues for me that I yeah. I don't need to be thinking about, right? So because oftentimes when we record a song, it'll just be Billy and I in the studio. So if you don't have the benefit of like a consistent bass player all the time and you're trying to fill in cracks where, you know, guitar is not in or guitar maybe out, it can be it can get a little murky. Yeah. 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 No. I, and I wondered like when, so when you guys play these songs live too, are you got, are you putting in, are there sequencers and things that, um, that yeah, sometimes. Sort of, yeah. So, so that in some, in some of the newer material, we, we use backing tracks, excuse me, which is, which is great. I love it. Um, but all the old stuff is just off the rails live. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to hear, a concert that has both of those things because I don't know. I'm just not a big like quantization, like all that stuff. I'm not, you know, you know me, I'm not a quantized individual. I'm kind of <laughs> all over the map, right? I'm, I'm here, I'm there, I'm everywhere. I'm yeah. not like walking organic, you know, yeah. At, yeah. A, at 118 BPM to the store. I'm like, I'm hurrying up to see a bird or I'm slowing down to watch something on the ground or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to, you know, humanize things as much as I can because I think that's that's important. And I think a lot of a lot of at least what what's missing from some music for me is just the kind of post is the the 
what what's not appealing to me is the overabundance of post-production and, and drumming. Cause I know a lot of drummers that are great drummers that, you know, you would you imagine Jim Gordon going in and playing you're so vain today. Yeah. Some 25 year old kid would be pro tooling his drum set and you'd be like, Oh, what? Yeah, I know. I know. Because I mean, it, I, I know like yeah. Kenny Arnoff, like, what 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 do you do? are you gonna have kenny arnoff like why why are you why is there or you know jimmy chamberlain or john to christopher what what did you buy and why you know why did you buy this ferrari if you're gonna take a, a ford motor and put it in it right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly no i know but you're right but the, i hear this so much jimmy i hear it so much from guys like you that's the mentality out there that it's like, well, there's that one section where it was just a, just a, you know, during the chorus, it just went up just a, just a half a click. And it's like, oh my God, that's called an organic, you know, like just, it's called breathing, you know, like. That's right. Geez. And if you listen to like, 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 okay, my daughter, when she was little, she had, a, we got her a record player as soon as she was old enough and, and she would go down and pick out records out of my collection. So yeah. <clears throat> And she would just, before she could read, so she would just get the covers that she liked, right? So at one point she was listening to like Future Shock, Curtis Mayfield, like, <laughs> like, 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 what, what's she playing in there, right? Like, oh my God. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> but one of, one of the records she had was Earth, Wind & Fire Fantasy, right? The, the greatest hits. And, yeah. Man, if you listen to that stuff, it just takes off at the end. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you, and you think when you hear like Celebration or, when you hear that stuff, you're like, God, it's so tight and it's so in the pocket. But then when you listen after you've been doing, you know, our jobs for a while, then you're like, oh, man, that's interesting. Like we yeah, yeah. we covered Stairway to Heaven on our Shiny and Oh So Bright tour. So, of course, I knew it. I played it a nauseating amount of times when I was a kid. Right. I knew it front to back, even the mistakes, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. That song speeds up. I put a clock on it because I just wanted to get a tempo. It speeds up 18 BPM from start to finish. Wow. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. And when you're listening to it, you're like, man, there was no bottom with such a great timekeeper. <laughs> man. Yeah. I, 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 I would have guessed that it, sure, it sped up a little bit. I would have never thought 18 BPM. So that's, that's significant. That's like, yeah, that's, I mean, that's my, I could be wrong, but that's my memory. It's something, yeah. it's something outlandish like that. No, I, um, but yeah. again, like we bought, we bought it because we bought it because it was great. And we weren't thinking about the, 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 the mathematical, um, you know, qualifiers of the music. We were just simply thinking about how does it make us feel? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite Rolling Stones songs and one of my favorite all times songs, Honky Tonk Woman, you know? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, by the end, they're, they're cranking. Yeah, they're cranking, you know? And as a kid, you're right. I, that came out in 1969. I was almost nine years old and hearing that in the radio and I couldn't hear it enough. I just, I, I wish they would play it over and over again. And, and, you know, it wasn't really until years later, like you say, like you listen to it, you go like, well, shit, yeah, there it is. The second verse, it just, it goes. Yeah, and you it know goes from like a blues cowbell to like a samba cowbell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, my, my theory on that, I, 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 I was fortunate to know Charlie really well. And I never, I never asked him about that song in particular. 
Um, but he was funny whenever I would ask him about certain songs, he'd either say, I don't remember, or he'd, he'd say, <laughs> you know, because we just decided to do it that way, you know, but, but I, I, I would bet you to, you just made this point a minute ago. I'll bet they got such a great basic track. Jimmy Miller, the producer said, fuck it. I know it's sped up. It ain't going to get drum- no better. Yeah. ain't going to get no better. It had the mojo and he was a drummer himself. Jimmy Miller. He probably yeah. said that had, that had the magic. We're going to keep that. Uh, and you know, if Keith made a mistake or whatever, we'll fix that later. But, um, you know, recut the guitar track, but yeah, it's all those songs. Like you say, you sort of had to live with it. And in that case, I'm glad they did because it's, it's such a organic masterpiece, you know, it's a standard, right? I mean, it's yeah. become one of the greatest songs of all time. And if you read Keith's book, which I read when it came out, he talks yeah. about Charlie in such a reverent way. And he basically, when you, when you distilled the stones down, Keith says, look, no Charlie, no stones. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is like, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Watts was like, he was just, he was just one of those guys that like, whatever, whatever he played was right. It's not like, you know, this part was better than this. Whatever he played was right. And it was, yeah. and even he'd leave a snare drum out and even like the tattoos you or emotional rescue, like that stuff is, it's so burning and so intense in a minimalist way. I never got to meet Charlie and I, I wasn't a fan of his when I was a young drummer because I was into, you know, Jeff Beck and sure. Tony Williams. And like, I was into, you know, I want to play as many notes as I could in a bar. Right. <laughs> I'm not interested in that guy or, or, you know, Don Henley. Um, but but as I got older and you try to do that stuff, you realize that what like, this guy would, it's not even a fair fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wish I could have got, I wish I could have got you both in the same room because you guys would be instant best buds. You know, I mean, with, with your knowledge of, of jazz history and his, I would talk to him for hours and, and I would, I would be lost because he would go so deep with some of these guys and, and records that I'm sure you would, you would know right away what he was talking about though. I mean, he was so into it. Well, Don so, Lombardi, uh, I did that Don Lombardi live. Uh, we did two parts is, you know, Don and I are connected at the hip as well, like you and I, and I love, I love talking to Don because we yeah. can go way, way, way deep. And Don, Don was, Don was there, you know, Don, Don was giving Elvin pictures of beer you know, I mean, I mean, I his stories are just, yeah. I mean, I remember like me, Don, Joe Percaro and um, Ralph Humphrey in his office, listening to a bass drum, only Buddy Rich, Buddy Rich recording, only oh the bass God. drum. Only the <laughs> bass drum. Oh my God. Yeah, that would it was be Don. So, yeah. It was yeah. so amazing. But, um, Don was saying that he was going to try to get me and Keltner on the same show. And uh, so we could have a, a little, a drum riff off uh bro down thing. So that would be, that would be super fun. Oh, that Which, yeah, so I mean, cool. you know, those guys, those guys understood, you know, how to capture. And that was, what's great about working with Butch Vig because Butch was a drummer and a great drummer in his own right. And he would, yeah. he knew things about your drumming that maybe you, you could do, but you weren't aware of, that they had so much value. Right. So Butch, Butch would say, look, you know, this is, this, 
this may be, you know, uh, not of a consequence to you, but this is why your drumming to me gives it so has so much value. These are the things that you do that I have to have on this record. And it was interesting to have somebody with that you trust with a different vantage point that was able to say like your hi-hat work, like that's yeah, like playing quarter notes on the ride while the left foot does eighth notes, you know, makes his chorus feel a certain way. Like don't lose that, you know, don't, yeah. don't try to reinvent the wheel here. That's a, that's a really good example too. Cause I hear a lot of that and you, you don't hear a lot of rock drummers in, in bands, you know, alternative bands playing with that kind of, technique you know like that that's like a tony thing i think a tony when i hear those those eighth you know, clicking eighth notes with your left foot on the hi-hat I, I you know i as a kid i aspired to be able to play all i you know left-handed but tried to play all that shit just you know just really get that comfortable where you could get those eighth notes happening like that and you you got that down yeah well that's you know again that's all that listening to tony and 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 also the richard bailey like the richard bailey stuff on the her first jeff beck record i mean yeah, that's yeah. really a lot of that stuff you know i think but again you know you learn as a drummer you learn as much from the other musicians as well like max middleton was a great was a huge influence on me the way he approached the keyboard was a was a huge influence on me bill evans is a huge influence on me i yeah. mean john coltrane obviously a huge devil uh, but also like um but also like, um, oh, who's the, uh, not, uh, God, I'm not working anything these guys, like the singer in ACDC, right? Brian Johnson. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. when you, when you listen to Back in Black and you listen to the interplay between the vocal cadence and the drums, your palms start sweating. Yeah. I mean, yeah. his, his timekeeping, like Sinatra level timekeeping, right? Like, like when you hear Frank play with time yeah, in a way yeah. that's supporting a narrative in a certain way, there's a power in that that's way beyond anybody who is doing things mathematically. And Brian Johnson is another person who like metronomically can sing like a drummer. And it's what gives the chugging in the drum such a ferocious pocket. When you hear the way he delivers the vocal on top of it, it becomes like a shaker part. And I, I think, mean, you know, yeah. Go back and listen to that record and, and listen yeah. to the more up-tempo stuff and like listen to the listen to the cadence and the way he drops the vocals in the pocket. And you'll see that it, it's so additive to the drumming. Like Corgan and I talk about this all the time. I try to make him aware of like the vocal timing has a lot to do with the way the drums are perceived, right? But if you listen to like Sinatra with Nelson Riddle or anything, like the vocal it dictates the time oftentimes. So, so having somebody who's, who's, uh, you know, cognizant of that interplay and that relationship makes for us like Robert Plant, right. Another, another great timekeeper. Yeah. Um, Phil Collins obviously was a great, you know, there's, there's certain singers out there that get it, that get that hip shake thing. Paul Rogers where the drums yeah. like yeah. Simon Kirk, there's a reason that stuff sounds so good. Like I talked to Roy Thomas Baker about the clave part in all right now. And he claimed, he claimed that Paul played that clave while singing the lead vocal. No. Well, I had Simon <laughs> on my show and he said that he said, Paul did play the clave, but he didn't mention it was while he was singing the lead vocal. <laughs> Holy shit. And that could, that could be rock and roll folklore for all I know, but, but wow. just the fact that he was able to play that tight, 
right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it gives you an idea of like his timekeeping ability, and that's you know him, Freddie Mercury, like those people had a real uh, understanding of how their cad- vocal cadence Im- impacted the overall flow of the song. Jagger, that's, I mean, yeah, and that, that's really. And you mentioned Phil Collins too as a as a singing drummer, and that's a great example too. And I think that you'd put Don Henley in that category too of somebody that, like, yeah. You know, I, I think he's so overlooked as a as a drummer in terms of his his timekeeping. He you know, he would never in a million years uh you know present himself as a as a technical drummer by any stretch. But I think there's such a magic to his feel and to his to use you know, when you see him sing and play at the same time, it's it's really a lot harder to play those simple beats and sing the way he does and have it all like you just gave a great example, Jimmy. There's a, the two sort of work with each other. It's like, it's like a, like a, um, liquid sort of situation to what the way they work together, the vocal and the drum. Well, any, anything, anything that's creating time, you know, has a, has an influence on the, the yeah. whole holistic time. So, I think those are those are important things. I I met Nick Collins at uh, in Miami. Nick's Phil's son came to to see the drunk the the show, and I and Phil was there, but he didn't come because he's obviously not feeling well. But I'm I couldn't say enough things, and I I I felt a little bit bad because I just spent the whole time with Nick talking about his dad because you know Brand X was just part of my it's, it was. It was the exodus after the genesis of Tony Williams and all that stuff. The yeah. second book in my Bible was Strand X, right? And yeah. I think yeah. like that stuff, you know, unorthodox behavior, those records were allowed you to see what was possible within a construct like that. And I'd worked, I worked with Percy Jones after that. I worked with Percy about 10 years ago on a, on a Coltrane compilation that we did here in Chicago. Oh, it was man. amazing. Um, but I got, uh, I got about three weeks after that, I got this thing in the mail and I was like, this feels like a drum head, right? So I opened it up and it was a drum head and it was signed by Phil Collins. He drew a picture of his drum set and then he apologized for not coming to the show. And it's like one of my most prized possessions. Oh, I've got man. two, two great, I got two great drum heads. It's that one. And then I got one from Nam, the Nam show. That's uh, it's all autographed to my wife, to Lori. <laughs> um, because she she was she wanted to she she was like you're not going to get the drum head so I'm going to go get the drum head but it's Earl Palmer it's Roy Haynes it's Jr it's all the Yamaha guys right uh, and it's all to Lori right it's all, all to my wife Lori it's the coolest thing ever but Roy oh, Haynes so I mean cool. Roy Roy is such a cool dude and all those guys were you know Steve Jordan I mean everybody everybody signed it and it's wow. just the coolest. <laughs> like, oh. and that was the, that was the thing I was trying to articulate in modern drummer. Like, when you get when you get to the point, like the greatest one of the greatest things about my gig is being friends with people like you and being friends with Erskine. And I stalked Erskine in Europe when he was on tour, and I was over there. He's like, "Oh, you're here again." I saw him like three nights in a row because I had, <laughs> I was just rehearsing, so I was off at night. And we saw him in Berlin. I saw him in Sweden. I saw him, I think, in Spain. Uh, Bill Frizzell, we were stalking. Like you get to go and like, you know, yeah. be contemporaries with these people. And through people like yourselves, you meet and groove nights like we used to do with Yamaha. You'd end up hanging with blast. Mickey Curry or Steve Jordan or Clyde and Javo. And yeah. I, I mean, that was just those those nights were always just a dream 
I'll never forget the Zildjian party. You threw that Zildjian party and Jola Barber was playing and Freddie Gruber was up on the stage yelling at him about something and he was trying to play some drum solo. I was like, what the hell is going on? Only, only, oh man, only Freddie could get away with that. I know, Jola Barber. <laughs> and Freddie's going, Joe, Joe, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not, you're not doing that right. Like, what, what's going on here? Oh, it's funny you bring up that first PASIC I did. You know, the first PASIC was like, I had never done a drum clinic before. And Joe tested, wrote me into doing pal. You'll be great. Just go play a few songs. I'm like, I don't even have any songs. Like, you know, okay, to put it together. And then I get there and it's like, I'm, it's Tommy, I go. Peter and then me, I'm like, last, I got to follow Erskine. Right. right? And then the night before I was, I was still drinking back then, right? And then, like, the night before, they took me all out. Me, Peter, Freddie Gruber, Erskine, oh. all these guys are all drinking. The next day, I wasn't feeling great. And I'm doing my thing, and I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, this is the most uncomfortable thing I've ever done in my entire life. The room is super bright. Everybody's sitting on folding chairs with their arms crossed. And I looked over, and Peter's sitting in the front row. And he's oh. just, you know, how he does. He's just going like this. He's going hmm interesting (laughs) and then i was and then the rest of the clinic i was like don't look at peter don't look at peter (laughs) oh but i don't know what i would do if i had to uh, sit up there and play and have peter erskine in the front row look i i would lose my mind i I, well that's exactly what you do that's exactly what happened i was like oh my god this is i I can't end fast enough (laughs) you know oh man that was great was that in Columbus? Was that? Do you remember where it was? I remember. I think that. it was in Nashville. It was in, it was Nashville. in Nashville. Okay. Nashville or Indy? Yeah, one of those. Yeah, I remember Tom. No, you know, I don't. I don't mind doing them now. I just take my lumps. <laughs> uh, you, you do a great job. I, I, I know. I saw that one. I think you did one later in in um, in Louisville, Kentucky, maybe in the early two thousand. Maybe yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I remember. I remember that was a really great one. I was going to say, you know, a couple of times. I've I've been with Peter and he'll say, hand me a stick and go, do me a favor and just play this for me so I can hear it. <laughs> oh, and it's like, it's like, are you kidding me? And it's it's the you, I'm laughing because it's there can't be anything. It's it. I may as well be naked, you know. Standing, yeah. No, that's it. Yeah, as Vinnie yeah. Caliuta once said, naked in the four hundred five freeway. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> you, you couldn't be any more exposed. And it's just, yeah, it's like, just, just, just play that for me for a minute so I can hear what it sounds it's like. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I mean, but you know, ultimately what you end up realizing is that, um, you know, you're everybody in our community has everybody's back yeah. and, you know, I've done those clinics where I did that one in London or me, Bozio, Bissonette, Arnoff, uh, Thomas Lang. I mean, and, oh. and Jimmy Chamberlain, and I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, what, <laughs> what? No, but-, uh, but you know, those guys are still some of my best friends. I mean, Kenny and I are super tight. Terry and I are really, really pals. Tom, I mean, all of them. Or yeah. Kenny, I mean, Kenny comes to see me play jazz gigs. It's like they were like, hey, "Look, we're just here to do what we do. Right. We're not here to do what he does, and you're not here to do what he does." And we're just here to just celebrate our, our, the fact that we, you know, just just try to live in gratitude, right. For each, for ourselves and for each other. And I think once, you know, you hear guys at that level, we've, you know, obviously they're a little bit older than me and people that I've 
been in awe of my entire life when you realize that they're in the same, you both have the same job, right? And you may, you may paint a little differently, but it's not nonetheless compelling. Yeah. Yep. Well said. Yeah. And like you say, there's, that's the great thing about being a drummer is, is no one's ever going to, you know, you'd have to be a real dick to, to, to see somebody putting their best effort out there and, and be critical of it. And in that case, that wouldn't even apply to you because you can hang with all those guys. They'd be the first to tell you, you can, you can hang with all those guys. But, but to your point, I've, I've done gigs on Martha's Vineyard with this, this, uh, guitar player that plays in this band that Rick Murata and his brother Jerry play in the Murata brothers. So this, this guy, John would do these side gigs on a Thursday night and I'd go play with them. And Rick and Jerry would come and sit in the audience and talk <laughs> about, yeah, talk. And, but you know, after a couple of times I was like, okay, um, this is, this is, I'm going to do the best I can. And, and, and after Rick would bust my balls, which he would do anyway, he'd, he'd make of course. fun of how my snare drum sounds or say, I'm not hitting hard enough, you know, hit the drum harder. And I said, the guy hires me cause I don't play loud. That's why he likes me. But you know, but once I get past that, it's like, okay, I can, I know this Almond Brothers tune and I, I can play it. I can, I can get through it. I just got to not look at those two knuckleheads. And yeah. Right. Those guys are the worst. I mean, they're, you know, I, and you know, they're obviously, you know, incredible drummers and rick you know he used to host all those group yeah. nights you know yeah. and he's he's a funny guy and he's, uh, he's very entertaining and and yeah. he's you know smart smart smarter than you better than you yeah everything <laughs> yeah i know and he's introducing you <laughs> <laughs> he is a funny guy oh uh, yeah he it's it's you know uh, he yeah. you know you know rick you know the gad the, the gad gad it'll beat right yeah the, Chucky's in love. <laughs> Chucky's in love. That's it. Rick was the one who came up with that shit first. I think <laughs> you're absolutely right. No, he he t he's told me the story. He, he <laughs> I hear that story a lot, Jimmy. I keep I I see a lot of. Rick. I'm putting it out. There. I'm putting it out there. I mean, I love Steve too, but and and nobody does it like Steve, of course. But I somebody sent me. I think it was Vic sent me something. He was like, "Look, Murado is doing this. He did he's this gonna first. Look, I'm going to tell him. He's going to be so happy you said that." He's he's going to be so happy that that. Well, uh, you know, I I saw I saw Rick. We did a groove night in. Uh, we did a groove all stars thing in. I want to say it was in Mexico City. Yes, I remember. I didn't go to that, but I remember when you guys did that. It was me, Terry Lynn Carrington, Sonny Emery, uh, Jr. Rick, Jr. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun, and uh, and. Um, Who's the guy who plays uh, drums? Uh, Abe Laboreal Sr. was actually there. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was a kick, kick ass. We all played Earth, Wind, and Fire covers. You know, it's one of those, but it was, it was super fun. And Terry Lynn, I remember, was so good that day. I mean, oh. she's, 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 God damn, she's so good. She's I so love bad. her playing. She is really like top, top, top of the heap. Um, yeah. And creatively, creatively intense. Um, but Rick had just, he had just found out, well, he had the Everybody Loves Raymond song, right? Mm, mm -hmm. And I saw him and he looked a little ashen. Like, and I'm always ready to wind him up, right? If he doesn't look great, I'm like, <laughs> man, you're you're not looking that like you're not looking that great, right? Like what's what you got a cold or something, right? I mean, because he always does it to us, right? And he goes, uh, he goes, he said something, I can't remember, I'm gonna misquote this, but he said something like, no, 
I just found out how much money I'm making from the TV show. <laughs> I mean, you talk about it. You talk about a comeback, right? When you tell somebody they don't look that great, and and then they tell you it's because I just found out how fucking rich I am, motherfucker. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, is there any catering around? Like, oh, I know. No, he's uh, well. I'm going to see him in two days. We get on Kelly's sister has a place in the vineyard and we'll be down there for about five weeks. And Rick has one he owns, you mean? (laughs) Well, he has a place in the vineyard too. And we, we will be spending a lot of time with him. So I'm going to make sure he watches this episode. Cause yeah, I I love Rick. I mean, he is literally one of the greatest. I mean, he's another reason. Like he sure is. I mean, I used to look at those Sealy Dan liner notes and go, God damn, who is this guy? And what's he doing with his left foot? What's that hi-hat shit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, his interview in Drumhead, I don't know if you've ever read it. I um, have, yeah. It's it's one of the greatest interviews. And really, you know, God bless him for saying what happened to him. You yeah. know, I mean, it's really like he had a great New York experience. I mean, really, like, that's. <laughs> no, I, but again, he's him and his brother are, you know, incredibly, incredibly rich assets to our, our community. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I mean, incredibly talented and creative and, um, and, you know, Rick is such a natural talent and Jerry too, both of them. But I mean, started playing drums when he was 19 and, uh, and was working in the studios. Andy Newmark tells a great story, you know, Andy, took lessons he was a you know a trained drummer and was working doing gigs as a teenager he's a little younger than rick rick starts playing drums at 19 and within a year he's like working in the studios in new york like doing first call sessions right i mean yeah it's just in the days jimmy when when you'd go in and a producer you'd get hired to do a jingle for 25 bucks or 50 bucks whatever they got paid back then 100 bucks or something and and the guy'd say that was great. What are you doing tomorrow? Uh, yeah. You know, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, come back tomorrow and I'll, I got some more work for you. And it just kept going. And then his name started getting, he'd get a call from this guy saying, I heard you worked for this guy. I got this other thing happening. Okay, sure. And it's just all of a sudden he's playing on these records and it's a, an incredible story. It really is. It is. And it's, it was so fun to read it in, in drumhead. Cause I had known, I had known the kind of broad strokes of it and obviously was, familiar with a lot of his, you know, recorded body of work, but just the way it happened for him. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said for, you know, that, that natural ability and then the ability to also focus and put time into it and, and treat it with respect. I mean, I often tell people like, you know, the oldest relationship I have is the relationship with my drum set. I mean, it's, it's 51 years I've been playing now. So it's yeah. older than my relationship with my parents even, uh, cause they died, you know, they died some time ago. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, important that I honor that at all times because it's such a, it's, it's not, it's not the drumming and the rewards and the awards and the, and the recognition that defines me. It's the covenant between me and my instrument that defines me and how I honor that and celebrate it. That's the root of what qualifies somebody as a human being is that 
they honor themselves in a way that's honest, right? And they and they and yeah. they have those deep, honest conversations with themselves that nobody else has to hear, but just to be to have something like the drums to keep you as a barometer is it's an insanely cool thing to have. It's much I, I liken it to like a martial art or, or something that you dedicate, you never really get, you dedicate your life to it, and it's always something that you carry with you. And it becomes a reflecting pool of the other things in your life, like your relationship with your family, how you relate to your wife, how you feel about your other people. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Well said. Well, I, I know we've been going for a while and I, I, I know you've got other places to go, but I do. I want to touch quickly before we wrap things up on playing with Frank Catalano and and uh, really getting to explore, you know, your your jazz roots and your jazz side and just maybe you could talk about that for a second and you know kind of how you've had that opportunity to do that yeah playing with frank's been great i mean it's really i've got and i've got to be play with some great uh other great musicians um like you know john benitas i played with in, in new york and theo hill and vic juris we played with when when vic was still with us we did a tour in in japan with vic which was incredible to work, work with him. But yeah, the jazz stuff is really, you know, it's, it's, again, it's a, it's another way to kind of keep yourself honest and not uh, allow yourself to kind of not, not allow, I always call it not letting the concrete dry. Right. And not letting your feet get stuck in the concrete, like just to keep moving. You know, I started doing it about 10 years ago. And I was kind of on the fence about doing it at first because I didn't feel like I had put the time in, in that, in, in, in respect to my right hand and being able to play articulately and, and, and express myself within the context of how I'd like to be expressed in that, in that architecture. So I worked really hard on it. I mean, I worked for a couple of years on, you know, my right hand and getting that, getting that back to where I could play, you know, a pretty decent swing feel. And then, you know, I take I take some lessons from time to time from this guy, Steve Lyman uh, in New York, who's a kind of a jazz independence guru. Uh, we work a lot on stick control stuff just between the left hand and the right foot. Um, so that's another it's just a, it's just stuff that I like to do to get me out of the pumpkins head because the jazz stuff really comes back and, and rewards me in in my in my day gig because it forces you to deal with consistencies and inconsistencies all the time, right? That's stuff. Some of the stuff is, it's not necessarily hard to play, but it's as hard as you want to make it right. It's how, sure. how lucid, how, how lucid do you want to be in a jazz context? Do you want to be able to be, you know, John Riley or, or, or Bill Stewart, you know, some of the guys that I, that I really love that are, that are around now, Marcus Gilmore, like, there's a lot, there's a lot of room to grow within that context with, with the rock stuff. There's, there's a lot of room to grow, but it percolates at a much slower rate. So in the, in the jazz world, when I'm, I went to see Ari Honig with, uh, with Scott Coley, uh, or with, no, with Kenny Warner, uh, in Boston, not too long ago. And like watching those guys or Nate Wood, like watching those guys articulate on the drum set now in a modern, in a modern way is really inspiring to me. And I, and I like, I don't want to be that type of drummer, but I want to be able to latch onto that stuff as a potential destination down the road. And it's just, it's just, I'm just the type of person that enjoys kind of working on that stuff. Uh, and I feel like it makes, it makes me uh, more of a participant 
in my own life than just kind of, I mean, I could just be the pumpkin drummer and still get the modern drummer cover maybe, maybe, but I feel like it is the other stuff that I do that really, it's like, you know, what do you do when no one's looking, right? It's like, that's kind of what defines us. Everybody knows what I do when people are looking, but do they know like, or do I know what I'm doing when people aren't looking? Am I practicing my independent stuff or am I working with Frank or, putting myself out there. Like my, my rule is generally, I won't say no to, to gigs that come up no matter how out of how weird they might be. Like I, I'm more into doing stuff like that than I am like playing on, you know, band X, super famous band X's record. I'd rather play on some unknown dude's record. Who's got something wacky. That's, that's fun. Or go play, you know, a gig with, with, with things that are like guys want to play stuff in odd time signatures or stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It just no, keeps me honest. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to uh, make it sound like it's a tool because playing with Frank is an intense and fun thing. I mean, I played with Julian Smith and uh, Randy, um, <clears throat> uh, Randy Ingram. So, I mean, some new great jazz players. And when you play with those guys, you become a better player. Randy Ingram is, if you haven't heard his solo stuff, I mean, he's, he's like a Bill Evans-esque piano player and his sense of time is incredible. Well, I, and I think, I think it speaks volumes too. um, And I think you're being humble because I think the fact that these, that, that you can play with these guys and you can hang really speaks to you putting the work in, you know what I mean? You, you've put the work in to, to be a better drummer in this entirely different different way than what's your kind of comfort zone you know like you could you can wake up in the morning and and uh you you can play a pumpkins gig i don't want to say in your sleep that that that's not fair to say that but you know what i'm saying i mean you know those songs inside and out Mm -hmm. yeah and on your worst day you could be feeling you could have the flu but you could go in and and put in a a great night on stage with the pumpkins but you got to know your shit you got to be on your toes to play at the level that you're playing at with these other players. And that, I think, I think that's great, man. And and I'll just say this too, Jimmy, I think it's so cool that you've had this, um, you know, as a kid, this was the first kind of music that turned you on or one of the first things I know you were into a lot of the rock bands too, but like to be able now at this point in your life to have that other side and be able to fulfill that part of it is, is so great. And I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's really, it really is. Um, it really is a nice uh, outlet for me and something that really gives me uh, an incredibly uh, rich and vibrant uh, alternative vantage point into, into music. Right. And I think that's <clears throat> like a lot, when you would talk about early pumpkin stuff, none of those influences were from contemporary sources. <laughs> I mean, all of those drum influences were from music that was completely different to what we were playing. So the more, the more you can listen to, you know, Zakir Hussein or whoever you're listening to, Dan Weiss, like if you can get, if you can start to root in the, 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 the purposeness of that type of playing and bring it forward into your day gig, as I call it, like it, it, it makes you sound like way more inventive than you are because you're just, you're just, it's like when you when you talk to like you think you know something about like 
just pick a, let's say, you know, something about like world war two, right. And you know, like what you learned in high school history and you're, you got an A in the class and then you meet somebody from Russia yeah, and they start talking about it from their side. And then you realize you only know about 40% of the story. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's, it's music is a lot like that. Like we, we, we tend to only know a little bit of the story. Have you read that book Drummond Men? No, no. It's uh, it's all about the it's all about the um, early. Well, right now it is. I'm just on the first two chapters, but you should pick it up. It's really good. I'll send you a yeah. picture of the cover. I don't even know who wrote it. Somebody recommended it to me. Maybe Mark Griffith. But uh, it's uh, it's incredible because it talks about Kenny Clark and 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 Max and and those guys and kind of where they came from. Yeah. And how you know the 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 ability to place time on the ride symbol as opposed to the kick and snare, just that simple thing yeah, was yeah. probably the, a big part of the reason that Bob even happened. Wow. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's, and he, and he really does an elegant job of talking about the gravity of that shift in timekeeping yeah. with, yeah. Uh, you know, chick web and like where it was before the boom, cop, boom, cop, boom, boom, you know, to guys like playing time with the ride and the hat and then dropping bombs on the kick drum. Right. Nobody was doing that shit until those guys started, started yeah. playing like that. And then having to solo within the context of a, of a, a head, a chorus, you know, it, there was a lot of things that went on that people don't name check now that were really part of the dizzy Charlie Parker whole movement forward. And then right. if, if you know that stuff, it makes, it makes you want to look for like, what is, what is today's version of that stuff? Like yeah. what's, is, is it the high hat on the left? I mean, it could be anything. It could be something that simple, but it's something that, you know, can redirect your playing in a way that's like when you hear, when you try to play a reggae beat for the first time and you realize that the, the bass drum's all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or in my case for the hundredth time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the same here. Yeah, same. Like, there's a reason I never play reggae beats, right? Because I just can't. So. <laughs> uh, no, no, but that's that's a great analogy, though. Yeah, it's 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 all those things that yeah. When when you start to really think about the evolution and how these things happened, um, I I do. Yeah, and quickly... you think about Ringo, like Ringo, right? Like the things that Ringo were doing that were like became like, hey, yeah. play the Ringo beat, like, right? Yeah. <clears throat> opening the hi-hat and, and getting that wash sound that became such a staple and, and that sound. Um, yeah. I do before I forget. And now it's, now it's like, can you close the hi-hat a little bit? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I want to just share this photo of, uh, of my, my buddy on the cover of modern drummer magazine and remind everybody, this is out right now, the July issue, check it out, Jimmy Chamberlain. And I'm so honored to be right there in the, the bottom of the page where I belong. <laughs> Come on, John, you need <laughs> to get you. your own cover, man. It's like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to write you in, in the reader's poll. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. And Vince Wilburn, I don't know if, if you've checked out Vince's interview. It's great. He's, I don't know if you know Vince, but he's another Chicago guy too. Yeah. I know Vince. Yeah, of course. You know Vince. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Miles Davis. Yeah, we're pals. He's, yeah. he, he's great. I love Vince. He's but. one of the sweetest guys. I mean, he's just a sweetheart. He's always been so kind to me. Yeah. <clears throat> he used to come to pumpkin gigs all the time and hang out. And then I realized he was related to Miles Davis. And I was like, 
Damn. Another reason to be nervous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Miles' nephew is just what I need <laughs> in the audience tonight. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Jimmy, this has been a blast, my friend. Wow. Yeah, always. So much fun. Um, thank you so much for being here today. And I want to thank everybody for watching. And uh, I kept you here longer than I said I would, but we. I, I feel like we could go another two hours easy as we oh, tend yeah. to do. I mean, I never have anything better to do than sit and talk to you. So I'm, I'm all good, man. Thank you, brother. Likewise, too. Like, thank you. I want to thank my buddy Joey Goodsell once again for tuning in. I think the first time he's watched live. So, Joey, thanks for tuning in. And uh, Oh, and I you- wanted to tell everybody I'm wearing my, my, milestone, my milestone drum shirt. <laughs> yeah, check that out. Ron Donette's company. I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we played those milestone snares. Oh my god, this sounds! I bought a I bought a reissued Dynasonic to play yeah. to play with Frank, and then Ron sent me one of those milestones. I'm like, every time he sends me a snare, he makes all my other snares redundant. Right? <laughs> I gotta check one out. I know. I, know. I mean, he's it's it's a beautiful instrument. I mean, he's a beautiful man, and he makes some of the greatest. I mean, well, the the greatest drums. I mean, he yeah. he gifted me his prototype titanium snare at a gig in Vancouver or Seattle. And I put it up on the drum kit for sound check. And then uh, he goes, well, yeah, just take it with you. I said, take it with me. I'm going to play it tonight. He's like, you're going to play it tonight at an arena show. And I go, yeah. He's like, won't the sound man care? And I'm like, yeah, he's going to care that it sounds better than my signature snare. I mean, it sounds great, right? <laughs> I play, I've been playing that snare ever since I got it. And now it's wow. on, it's the, I think it's the only snare on autumn. Or it's no on, or on the not on autumn on the new record we just recorded it's the it's the only snare i used on the new record that's coming out uh later early next year so yeah ron's incredible well great man great shout out to run Danette. yeah <laughs> all right jc hang tight for one second we'll end the stream thanks for watching everybody i'll see you soon big hand for jimmy chamberlain and uh thanks again jimmy hang on of course <clears throat> All right, part two of my episode with Jimmy Chamberlain. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do, be sure to give it a like and maybe leave a comment. And as always, even if you didn't like it, like it anyway, but don't leave a comment. Um, But I do appreciate you watching and listening, and I really do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe. Remember, no drummers are ever harmed on Live from My Drum Room. And uh, drummers, when in doubt, leave it out. I'll see you soon. Thanks.